So if you will, open up your Bible to Romans, the 10th chapter. As a matter of fact, this Bible uh, truth here that we're about to look at is one of just a handful of scriptures or verses in, in these verses in Hebrews uh, 6, 1 and 2 where it talks about the fundamental principles of Christ. The first one is repenting from dead works or useless activities. And then the next one is faith toward God. And so we're talking about this. And really to grow in God, you have to really get those things in your life. Now, these verses you know, tell us what faith is, how faith comes, so to speak, how, how to use your faith. But the fundamental thing about these verses is the Word of God. Is the Word of God. In other words, what is in the Word of God? What has God bought? What has God paid for? These principles don't just work on their own, but what has He bought? What has He paid for? What did Jesus do? What kind of finished work. When he finished what he did, he bought something. He paid for something. And so those are the truths we need to get inside of us. But if you will, we're going to just review real quick here in Romans 10, 8. We'll read verse 9 and verse 10, and then we'll jump down to verse uh, either 16 or just straight down to 17. Notice this. It says, but what does it say? Now, that's how he starts off. What does it say? What is the it that he's talking about? He's actually, the it he's talking about is Scripture. You can find this in the Old Testament. He said, but what does it say? What does the Scripture say? And it's real interesting. I wasn't going to read this, but let's back up to the first verse. Because he is talking about the Scripture and the importance of the Scripture and the value of the Scripture. So Hebrews uh, 10, verse 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God now, what is a zeal? Now, it's not something we really, a word we use today, but they have a real, we would probably say, say they have a real passion or a real fire for this or, you know, they just have, and that's why they're talking about a zeal, they really have this uh, toward God. Understand this, it said they had this zeal toward God, but, but. But, now, if they, if he would not have said, but, you could have just said, they have a zeal toward God. But when he said, but, a but is a qualifier. And he's about to qualify this zeal, this passion, this zest, this real hardcore drive toward God. They have this hardcore drive toward God, but, but, now, if you tell somebody, I'm going to be there for sure, but, 
Well, that's going to tell you something, right? It's adding something, and this is adding something, you know. I mean, if it was left alone, it would be good in itself, but he's really about to qualify something. But, but, not according to knowledge. What would knowledge do to somebody? It would give them understanding. It could help direct them. It could help guide them. You know, if you have an appliance that breaks down, I was actually talking to somebody the other night on the phone about some appliances, and they said, well, ours broke down. I was asking some questions. They said, I just looked online, found it was a simple part, and was able to fix it. They couldn't have done that without knowledge. They could have been going about all kinds of stuff, pulling wires, thinking it's this, thinking it's that. What did they do? They inquired. They got knowledge. Here's the thing. If it's not according to knowledge, what could be the conclusion? If there are no firm parameters set forth by knowledge, you could do all kinds of things different. So notice this. He said, for they being ignorant. Wow, that's a boost from but. So now we're not taking anything away from their zeal. They have zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. Knowledge would be like sights on a gun. Knowledge would direct. And so he said here, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. So think about this. They had a zeal toward God, but it said they were ignorant of God's righteousness. So they wanted to go toward God, but they were ignorant about the one they were trying to go toward. Notice this, they, they were ignorant of his righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Notice, they didn't submit to God's righteousness, they tried to approach God their own way. Why did they try to get to God their own way? They were ignorant. So they didn't know God's way, so they tried to do it their way, and that doesn't diminish the fact that somebody has a zeal, it just means they're trying it on their own approach because they don't have knowledge. Hey, there are a lot of people in a lot of religions that have a lot of zeal toward God. You can't underestimate that. You can't take it away. Because then you would have to say, no, that's not true. Only Christians have a zeal toward God. No, people can have a zeal toward God, but it be not according to knowledge. So you could say it this way, it's a misdirected zeal or desire or passion. What would be the remedy? Well, if it's not according to knowledge 
and then he uses the word ignorance, then I would think what would help us approach God or get our zeal directed correctly would be knowledge. Knowledge would be the key. In other words, if I'm real passionate about this, but I just say, well, this is the right way, what makes it better than your way or somebody else's way? Has God given us instructions so that we could direct our zeal, our passion, toward Him correctly? And if we could, would that help? Notice he goes on to say, Now they had an ignorance of God's good standing with Himself. And they tried to establish their own righteousness. What does that mean? It means this. If you read the context, they were working to try and be good with God in good standing. The law was given in the Old Testament, and they tried to work to be righteous. And the Bible said nobody could ever measure up on their own. So God sent His Son, Jesus. He died, and anybody who would receive Him would be put back in good standing with God. Their sins would be washed away. They'd get a new spiritual nature. They would become a child of God. That was God's design. So that's written in the Old Testament. It's written in the New Testament. But see, they kept trying to do it by their own works. That was ignorance. Notice this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. It's not the, he's not the end of the law. He's the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, Christ didn't just get rid of the law because Paul who wrote this said in Ephesians, you know, children, obey your parents in the Lord for it's the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you might, you know, so on and so forth. So it's the first commandment with promise. And he quoted the law. And he did it several other times in the New Testament. But he did away with the law for making people in good standing with God. You cannot work to be in good standing with God. When you put your faith in Jesus and receive him, you are in good standing with God. All your sins are washed away. Anything that would make you inferior before God is done away with in Christ. Period. That's why we're justified by faith. But the law is still there. As a matter of fact, the law, the Bible said, Paul wrote in Timothy, he said, the law is good if it's used right. Well, what would be the, use, the right use of the law? Well, one good use is, <clears throat> would be to tell a lost world, these are the rules, these are the standards, and what it will do is show them they don't measure up. Well, if they don't measure up, they're in big trouble. But there's a big solution. Christ has already made a good standing for them. And so if they find, you know, some people say, I'm good enough, I can make it in. You ever heard that? I'm good enough. When I get there, I just don't hurt people. I don't do this. But the whole thing is, if you put the law out there and said, have you ever lied? 
Because, see, they're trying to establish their own, but it's according to ignorance, not according to the truth. So the law has its place. It just doesn't have the same place it used to have. You with me? And so here, he said, for Christ, verse 4, is the, is the end of the law for good standing or being just like you never sinned. Righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes, what's he talking about here? Approaching God, but approaching him according to knowledge. Writes about the righteousness which is of the law, that the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, you know, we need to get him here and help us and fix things. And he said, that's not what it is. He said, this is how it works. And he's about to tell us how this good standing, how this faith works. And he said in verse 8, But what does it say? What's he talking about? The Scripture. Think about this. Those people missed the mark because they left the Scripture. They didn't look at the Scriptures that said he pierced his hands and feet. And they didn't look at the Scriptures in the Old Testament that said that the just, or literally the righteous, shall live by faith. They didn't read those things. And they just stuck with the law, which the Bible said, no man can be justified in the sight of God by the works of the law. So you can't be in good standing with God by doing good works. It's by your faith in Christ. It's a free gift. It's yours when you receive him. And so here in verse 8, he says, but what does it say? What does the word say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Notice what he said. He said, the word is in your mouth, and the word is to be in your heart. Now, what's to be there? The word is. It's to be in your mouth, and it's to be in your heart. That is the word of faith. Then verse 9 tells us some more. He said that if you confess with your mouth, like we said, it's interesting. He just used the word mouth and heart. He said the word before. Now he adds the word confess with your mouth. And then he said, if you confess with your mouth, that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. So he adds Believe it in your heart, he said, then you'll be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And like I've said before and won't go into detail really today, he is just trying to tell you and give you an explanation of how this faith works. It needs to be in two places. You need to accept the word in your heart. You need to have it in your mouth. The way you have it in your mouth is by saying it. The way you have it in your heart is by believing it. And then he said, when it's there, then you're, with your heart you believe unto, and with your mouth you confess unto. In other words, it brings you the results. Now, verse 17, we're going to pick up here. How do we get this word in our heart then? We know how to get it in our mouth. You know, some people have been accused of being a big mouth. What does that mean? It means we talk. That doesn't mean they just have a big mouth. 
Now, it could, but it means they talk. So we, most of us are pretty good about that. But he tells us what needs to be in our mouth, but he says it needs to be in your heart. And how does it need to be in your heart? You must believe it in your heart. In other words, you must accept the truth of God's Word in your heart. Notice verse 17. We'll read verse 16 also. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does faith come? It comes by hearing the word of God. It comes by hearing the Word of God. I wasn't going to read this verse, but turn to Proverbs 4, and then we're going to look at some different things. Here's what you need to understand. Here's what I need to understand. The Bible teaches the only way to get faith or Bible faith is to get it through the Word of God. You don't get it any other way than hearing God's Word. You don't get it by prayer. Now, there are different avenues by which you can hear His Word. You can read it yourself. You can listen to it online or listen to it on your... You can hear me preach on Sunday morning or Sunday night or at prayer if, you know, I share. Or, or you can go to a home group or you can go to a men's Bible study, you know, group or women's night. There are different ways. You can talk with one another. You could sing a song that's scriptural and you would hear the word. So faith can come and only comes that way, but you have to accept what you hear. It doesn't automatically come. Because that's why he said they have not all obeyed, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You have to accept what is God speaking to you. Let me say that again. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the, notice that phrase, the Word of God. The Word of God. That's super important for us to know. That it's hearing God's Word. What is God's Word? The biggest word is this book. Now, He'll deal with the believers, but it'll never take you beyond the book, so to speak. In other words, He's not going to say something that just violates Scripture. His leadings will be in line so we could hear and have faith to do something by hearing from Him or being led by Him. Notice this in Proverbs 4, verse 20. It says, My son, give attention to, look at that, my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. In other words, read them, look at them, and then lean your ear toward them. What does that mean? We've heard things before. Take out the trash. But then you don't believe in it, so you don't do it. You didn't incline your ear to that. You didn't accept it. You didn't do it. Inclining your ear to the saying is accepting. Haven't you ever heard stuff that said, well, you're stupid for serving Jesus? 
You ever heard somebody say something like that to somebody? And then the Bible tells us a wise person does that. Well, I can incline my ear to whichever one I want to. I've heard them both, but I can choose what I'm going to accept. That's inclining your ear to it. That's going, okay, I'm sticking with what God has said. But what has God said? Notice this. He said, so he said, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. That doesn't mean you have to just put like three by five cards in front of your face and walk around like that. But it does mean you have to keep your mind on the answer and on what he said, not what other things say. Because other things will come to get you to not think on it and to begin to ponder something that's contrary to it, like it's not so. And so then he said, keep it before your eyes. Um, do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. If you keep the word of God before your eyes, it will stay in you. In other words, the way you think about it and accept it. But notice that phrase again and again about the Word of God. What is the Word of God? I want to talk about this for a little bit today. Turn with me to Matthew 22. I read this the other day in prayer, but it just seems right to share it again. What is the Word of God? We need to know what the Word of God is that we are to keep in front of our eyes. What is His Word? If Jesus told us something, we ought to pay attention. Because faith comes by hearing what God has to say. Notice this in Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, So this is Jesus who's encountered some people, and they were trying to trick Him. Uh, with some religious stuff. And he said, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Or my margin says you're deceived. King James said, you do err. You're in error. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Remember, they sought to approach him, but not according to knowledge, Therefore, they were ignorant. And here he said, you're deceived or misguided because you don't know the Scripture or the power of God. Think about that. And in the context, he's talking about how these people had really approached him according to some Jewish tradition and law and were saying to him, listen, if somebody dies and they've been married this many times, but the wife you know, keeps marrying and keeps marrying and these brothers and none of them have kids, whose will he be in the resurrection? They already had their theology wrong because they thought people die and they're dead and then when they rise, they're alive. He said, your, your theology is already wrong. Your study of God is already wrong. You're already deceived. People don't just die and go in the ground. Because notice, he said, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
but are like the angels of God in heaven. The Bible and Jesus teaches that we will be like. We will not be angels. We will be like them. Remember when Jesus said, out of your belly or innermost being will flow rivers of living water? Thus he spoke of the Holy Spirit who was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He said, you know, there's many times he said it would be like this. Not the actual image, but it would be like this. And he said we would be like angels. He didn't say we would be angels. The Holy Spirit is not a river in you, but he will flow strong in you. He said out of your belly it would flow like rivers. The Holy Spirit, you could say it this way, out of the inside of you the Holy Spirit will rise up really strong. Because it's he moves in you and will move in you like rivers. So that being said, he said, you'll be like the angels of God in heaven. Well, they're not married or given in marriage, but here's the thing. They're always in the masculine form and they're always in the neuter form. In other words, they're not reproducing. So he was trying to straighten them up and straighten them out. But notice the next verse. But concerning the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> so he touched on the marriage part in heaven. Then he said, but concerning the resurrection of the dead. So he talked about the married part. Now he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. And this is important. <clears throat> because they believed, well, they'll be raised up one day. He's about to answer that these people are basically not dead. They're still alive right now, but he makes a fascinating statement. Notice this in verse 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Now, what's he talking about here in the context? You do err, you're ignorant, you're misguided because you don't know the Scripture. You don't know what God has said. But notice this, he said, Notice, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Basically saying, these guys may have left here, but they're still alive. And see, they were basically saying each one died, and they're... Each one died, and each one died. Then the wife died, and that last husband. And then when they raise up. And he said, basically, <clears throat> they're still living. They're just not here. They're still living. They're just not here. And at this time, they were in Abraham's bosom. Now we know in the New Testament, when someone leaves... Who knows the Lord? They go straight to be with the Lord, and those who don't go straight to depart, and they are in hell. It's still, it's still in the Bible. You with me? Why is that so important? The Bible is still <clears throat> what it is. And what is the Bible? It's a good question, and we'll look at this for a few minutes. What is the Bible, really? What, what is the Bible? What is the Bible to us whether we like it or not? 
What is the Bible to humanity, whether they like it or not? Meaning you can like it, but it doesn't matter if you do or don't. Well, it does matter. Ultimately, it does. But meaning it won't change it. Notice this. Back up to verse 31. He said, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, notice this phrase. And if you're allowed to draw in your Bible, draw a smiley face on the side. Then underline this. Have you not read? Have you not read? Who was he writing to? People who had read. <clears throat> People who had read a lot. But he said, have you not read? That's a good question. Have you read? Notice what he said. Have you not read? Now, What's interesting is he said, have you not? In other words, do you not know this? Have you not read this? Have you ever not looked at this? And have you ever, have you ever not? Have you, hello? See, he's straightening them out, straightening them out. But notice what he said, have you not read? Notice this next phrase, what was spoken to you by God. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Now understand this, when he told them this, this was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. But he said, have you not read what was spoken? So, how do I read what somebody speaks? It has to be written down. Would you agree? Can you read something that's not written? So he said, have you not read what was spoken by God? Notice that next part. To you, so what was spoken to them was written hundreds and hundreds of years before they were even alive. So that means that that book was written for not just those three or four or five guys, but for whoever long before you ever got on the scene. Before you ever got on the scene, there is a book authored for humanity, and it's not just a book with good moral codes. It is actually what was spoken to you. When God intended and wrote those things down, it wasn't just for them, it was for everybody who read. Anybody could read that. What was he trying to do? They were ignorant, not knowing the Scriptures, and then he said the Scriptures were God speaking to you. Have you not read them? Why is this important? Because the validity of God's Word comes into question. This is God speaking to you. Jesus said, have you not read what God spoke to you? Have you not read what God spoke to you? <clears throat> so, so if they were alive hundreds of years after it was written, and Jesus said it was written to you, it's really written to whoever, because there's salvation for everybody. Yeah, then these have to be his words to everybody, or then some people could be ignorant, 
and say, I didn't know. And God will say, I spoke these things to you. So, and then they were written so you could read what I spoke to you. So you would know what I was saying to you. I- interesting. He didn't just say I was saying it generally. He said, I said it to you. To you. Jesus made a profound statement here. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I said, by God. He said that. He said, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? It's a good question. But remember, it's what was spoken to you by God. How many of you know that when you ever get something from God, because Christians will get stuff, God will deal with them. When you give your life to the Lord, God will start dealing with you about your life. And, so, and people will have a desire or a dream and God will deal with them. How many of you have ever written something down that was important that he dealt with you about? Anybody ever done that? You wrote it down. Why would you write it down? So you could read what was written or spoken to you by God. Right? Didn't he tell people to do that in Habakkuk? He said in the second chapter, write the vision and make it plain. What was the vision? That word that came to them from God. He said, write it down, make it plain, so he who reads it, well, what are you reading? What God has spoken. He who reads it might run with it, go with it. What are you running with? With what God said. How are you running with it? Because you're rereading it. Haven't you ever needed encouragement in your life as a believer? And maybe you're moving along in something and you got opposition and you went back because God dealt with you about your future and something coming and you went back and reread it? Anybody ever done that? Nobody's ever done that? A couple people? Oh, a few people have. You went back and reread it. What were you doing? You were reading what he spoke to you. For what purpose? To bring courage and encouragement to you. Now, if you are specific about what you wrote down, and you wrote down something important, you think he was specific about what he wanted written down? So that maybe in a hard time, you could go read what he spoke to you about? Somebody said, do you mean, what do you mean to me? That book is God speaking to you. So you can read it and find out what he spoke to you about. And he was big enough to write it all down. Somebody said, well, it's been changed so many times. That is a falsehood, first of all. Second of all, if you really believe God is God, he can keep his book just fine. He's big enough to protect it. I said he's big enough to protect it. And then we do have proofs along the way. They find the Dead Sea Scrolls. They find a book of Isaiah that was written, you know, way back. And all of a sudden, it's like the ones we have today, and it's written over a couple thousand years ago. And it just reinforces that it's in good tact, good standing, good place, not all tweaked. 
God's big enough. But what is it that we're talking about here? Here's why you'll hear stuff like that. Well, it's been interpreted so many times you can't trust it. Listen to me. Why do will we hear that? Why will we always hear that? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if your faith is going to be attacked, it's going to be attacked right on those lines. Because if you diminish the Bible, you diminish your faith. If you diminish a truth in there about deliverance or protection or what he paid for, and you diminish that, then you diminish your faith. You diminish your confidence in the Lord. Why? Because it's being removed. So we say, that's not for today, that's not for today, and we just read right past all that stuff, and we don't really accept it anymore. Then what happens is we're not accepting what God said on that subject, so it's destroying your faith. It's destroying your confidence. Notice this. Turn to, to uh, 2 Timothy, the third chapter. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. It says, all Scripture. How many? All. Jesus said, have you not read what was spoken to you by God. So what was written was God speaking. Now understand this. Not everything in the Bible is actually God speaking. But it's all God speaking. What? Everything written is not God speaking. But the Bible is God speaking. In other words, when the devil tempted Jesus and said, throw yourself off, and that's written down, that was the devil speaking. But those scriptures are God speaking, explaining what he said. You understand what I'm saying? So the whole of scripture is God speaking to us, but all different kinds of people spoke in scripture, but it was inspired by God to be in there. You with me? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All of them. Leviticus is profitable. The genealogies are profitable. I talked about this a couple prayer times back, went through some of them why they are profitable. Notice this. Doctrine, it's, good, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or mature, thoroughly equipped to every good work. Let's close over here in Second Peter. I believe we'll close here. Maybe we won't even read this. All Scripture, we'll read this and close here, I believe. Maybe we will read one more. But we are getting close. The Scripture, remember, I said that was the last one. How about Romans, the first chapter? We'll stay here in Peter, 
But he talks about the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the message from God. It is the power of God. Where is it contained? It's contained in the scriptures. And if faith comes by hearing the gospel or the good news, what are we really hearing when we read? You are hearing God talking to you. Well, that would be interesting because some people don't like what they're hearing. Now, I'm talking, you know, in the proper context and the right setting. And if it's just something I don't like, guess what? Who gets to change? Me. Because understand the force of the words Jesus used concerning scriptures that have you not read what was spoken to you? Before you were ever alive, there was a book written for you that is accurate, that is true, that is truth, and it's for you. It's for people who are ignorant, just like those ones who didn't have, you know, a knowledge. Still God speaking to them. That's why we're commanded to take it around the world. But don't think there isn't a devil trying to close countries to the gospel, get evil men in power to close the gospel off and stop the gospel from going. But God still wants us to go to the world, still wants us to share our faith, whether it's popular or not. Why? Because when you share your faith, which is based out of the Word of God, you're actually telling people what God says and has said to them. So should I be ashamed? Paul talked to young Timothy. He said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus. Well, what does he mean? Don't be ashamed about telling people what God's saying to them or has said to you and to us. Notice this in verse 16. I mean, why would we be ashamed? But there are thoughts that come to your mind and my mind and other people's minds who would say, ah, oh, be careful. Eh, what will people think? But remember what you're bringing is actually what God has said to them and they maybe have never even heard what God said to them. Because nobody's ever brought to them what God has said to them. You don't have to give them a word. Uh, this is the Lord right now. I Meaning that you may get a word, but you giving the scripture is giving God's word to them. You giving the scripture is giving God's word to somebody. Notice this. Verse 16. For we did not... The second... 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of God or the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. Now, this is when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Jesus was there, Peter was there, and a couple other of the disciples were there. And they saw this cloud come over, the glory of God. They saw Jesus transfigured in front of them. All of a sudden, they see him just glowing, basically, you know, for lack of better terms. You know, he was shining. And then a voice came out of the clouds and said, out of the glory of God, and said, this is my beloved son, you know, hear him, follow him. And so he said, verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory or out of that cloud. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Notice the next part. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. What prophetic word is he talking about that was confirmed? They had been waiting for the coming of Christ. He had been promised throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Peter, he said, holy men of old spoke as they were moved by God, and they would search inside what time and what manner the Spirit was, was expressing the coming of Christ when he would come. They were searching. They knew they keep getting these words about this coming Messiah, and they would check to see, when, Lord, you're dealing with me. We're giving these words, but when is he coming? Well, see, they had those prophetic word confirmed that this is the one. When the excellent voice came out of that cloud of glory, this is my beloved son right here. This is him. This is him. So what was the confirmation of all those words that had come from God that he had spoken? You found the right one. Notice this, uh, verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed or literally give attention to as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns, until the morning star arises in your hearts. How do you get the word of God in your heart? Faith comes by hearing, giving attention to the Word. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about you do well to pay attention to the Scriptures. Notice the very next verse. Knowing this, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, when you read that, you say nobody can privately interpret it. If you have a note in the middle of your Bible, it'll have a note in there. In verse 20 of that first chapter, and it'll have a number, and then if you go up into your margin, it'll say, or, origin. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private origin. Well, that will make sense when we read on. In other words, it's not of a private origin. In other words, I just don't originate this myself. No man just originates Scripture themselves. Nobody just comes up with them of their own private origin. They're not of a private origin. In other words, they didn't originate privately by the will of man. Notice the next verse explains it. 
for prophecy, or we could say prophecy of Scripture because that's what he's talking about. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So how did these things come, which are God saying something to us? They came not of their own origin. In other words, we just didn't sit around one day and go, let's just think of some stuff God would like to say. No, these things came by God Himself. He moved on people. They spoke it. Then it was panned so you could read what God has to say to you. No wonder you can get faith in God by reading the Bible because it's God speaking to you. 